0: Back up, Hello and welcome to the Point Blank series of Indicast. My name is Abhishek, and joining me from Tokyo is the economist Kenneth Kukie, who is currently working round the clock by visiting various disaster zones of uh, the largest ever earthquake in Japan's history. Uh, he's authored this week's cover story and it's well past midnight at this moment in Japan. Thanks so much, Ken, for doing this at this hour. Yeah,
1: it's my pleasure.
0: Uh, Ken, when we had spoken last about three years ago, you had just moved into a new assignment in Japan, and the last few days must have been crazy. In your words, this earthquake was equivalent to the power of 30,000 Hiroshima's, is what I read in the in the cover story. I hope you're doing good, and so is your family. How how are you doing? Yeah.
1: Thank you for asking. You know, we're doing okay. I would stress that the issues I'm facing personally as a journalist are very, very modest, minor, compared to the issues that the victims themselves are facing. However, any Tokyoite, and there's 36 million of them, are facing a stressful situation as well. So, I have company.
0: What were you doing when the ground shook? Where were you? What was that moment? Where
1: were you? Yeah, on March 11th at 2.45 in the afternoon, I was at a coffee shop in downtown Tokyo, and the entire building started shaking violently, so much so that you wouldn't be able to actually stand up without falling down. The whole thing was just absolutely bouncing and wobbling and shaking. It subsided a little bit, but then it came back again that shook everything around. Um, I realized very instantly that the training that one has and the rules that you're supposed to follow and decisions that you're supposed to make don't really work quite so well in practice. So for example, when things are shaking violently, you're supposed to go underneath the table. It doesn't help you when you think the whole building's gonna fall. So the rule is to go outside. I literally went outside onto one side of a building and was going to go back into the street where I thought I'd be safer I looked up and I saw a building in front of me shaking even more than the building I was in. So I took a few steps back to go back to my original building thinking I'm a little bit safer in this one than I am out on the street if that thing falls on top of me. But sure enough, it subsided a little bit and I was able to walk very quickly to a park where I knew that if buildings fell around, um, I probably would be safe.
0: Now, well, thank God, uh, at least you're safe, and uh, hopefully, people around you escaped in the building that you were in. There are several accounts of what exactly happened in the news. Um, we keep reading about the tsunami that came after the earthquake. What exactly happened? What does your research tell you? How high were the waves? Uh, what is the death toll? Because there are quite a few numbers that are being put out in the in the press.
1: Right. There's very really good reasons for why the numbers are different. I'll explain it. When the tsunami came through, the waves of the tsunami right at sea before they were going to crash into land might have been about, I've seen, seven or about ten meters tall. That's very, very high. They were predicting four-meter waves. But what happens is a lot of these communities are in coves. Coves are sort of horseshoe rings the mouth of it is very wide for the ocean to come into, and then it gets narrower and narrower, and then at the very base of the co- of the horseshoe, if you will, of that U-looking like letter, is where the city would be. What that does is it amplifies the waves. It's sort of like a funnel, so the waves get bigger and bigger as it gets in, until in some communities the water was, was certainly 30 meters high. That was an estimate that I got from an Australian aid worker, and the reason why is that there's no other way in which a car would otherwise have been able to be cast and floated up and on, left on top of a three-story building if it were not quite as high as that. When they were in these coves, they got even, even more forceful. This sort of amplified the power and destroyed things and then shoved it all the way up inland. You know, four or five kilometers the debris was left there, and then the water poured back down And so, tragically, you look for the city and the cities are washed away and gone. You look for bodies, those are washed out to sea as well.
0: Right, so in other words, the ocean claimed the land and the people who probably uh, were wanting to swim across the shore, there was no shore at all, so you, you didn't know whether you were going into the ocean or away from it. So there would have been quite a lot of confusion there as well. Yeah,
1: in some communities, Many people didn't respond to the tsunami warning as much as one would have thought. And the reason why was there was just a tsunami warning after another earthquake two days earlier, and the tsunami turned out to be 60 centimeters, less than one meter. So it didn't really matter to anyone. And so this time, I think a lot of people were complacent. They didn't realize that it was going to be as big as it was. The second reason is that the warning said that the tsunami was going to be three meters. In one community, I know it was three meters. I know nationally it was four meters meters. The effect of that was that communities that had seawalls that were maybe 6 or 7 or 8 meters tall didn't really worry so much. So if you were down by the beach, you felt you could take your time, and so you might have been driving on the road, or you went up to one of the evacuation areas. This is in the town of Ofunato. Uh, The evacuation areas themselves got completely blasted by a torrent of water, so people who were at the safe area themselves became victims of the floods because it was just so much higher than anyone expected.
0: And then how is the common man out there uh, responding to this? Uh, I've read a special report by your colleague Henry Trix some time back which very explicitly talks about uh, how Japan is an aging country. So quite a significant population of Japan is old. During these times with evacuation and with waves crashing and the whole city being being affected. Uh, bear with me while I quote one of your friends, Andreas Kluth, your colleague and friend who covered Hong Kong some time back and he spoke on his blog about uh, the SARS outbreak and how different countries responded. Uh, he said Taiwan uh, nurses, they fled the hospitals, they made matters very worse for the ones who were affected. On the other hand, the Singaporeans, they re- responded with ruthless efficiency is what he says. They quarantined people, they were proper rules, nobody was given special treatment, process preceded people. In Hong Kong, it was a mix of all, that is, they gave certain amount of uh, leeway to certain families. Uh, so Singapore and Hong Kong did well and Taiwan did not. So how is the Japanese, the average Japanese out there reacting to it because you are part of that community now as at the ground zero? So uh, how are they responding to this mayhem?
1: It depends where they are. So those in the crisis zone who are responding to it with dignity and stoicism and civic unity. And the reason why is because they're survivors and they all know someone, often many, many people, who died, right? It's hard to find a family in which everyone is alive still. Usually in in almost every family, there's someone that had died. And in some places, you just can't find the families. The whole family died. There's no one to report them. In those areas, there is quiet contemplation. Stoicism and dignity. In the Tokyo area, people are just concentrating on their work and trying to take precautions. But there's not much you can do about a burning nuclear reactor 100 kilometers away from you. People here are jittery and nervous. They're, it's tense. But you know, in Japan, you don't show your emotions, so you don't really see it so much. We all want this to end, and every day there's worse news. One day, it's you know that radiation levels are higher the next day that it's raining so that the radiation is going to fall. And today, the news of the day was that the water, tap water, is contaminated. Not what you want when you live in the world's largest city with 36 million people. That's what we get, and so we're all trying to do the best of it. However, when you leave Tokyo and you go to other places, such as maybe Kyoto or Osaka, Fukuoka, which is all the way in the south, or all the way up north in Sapporo, it's very, very different. There... The quake did not touch the Japanese there at all. People are shopping and people are just getting on with their life and they're not as nervous as you are elsewhere in the country.
0: Right, and I also read in in some of your articles that in spite of all of this, the radiation fears, the the power cuts and the transportation being disrupted, there were quite a few people who queued up on March 15th to meet their tax deadlines. The schools have been converted into evacuation centres and... There were people who would take off their shoes when they enter into an evacuation center. There is a professor who wrote an article on Facebook when he was holed up in a stationary train for 16 hours and he said uh, very positively that if you have to spend 16 hours in a stationary train and an additional 9 hours to get home, then do it in Japan because of the kind of uh, gumption that the Japanese have shown or or the public transport has shown. With you being part of Japan for about 3 years, what makes them so devoted and optimistic, especially during times of crises? And you said they don't show it much on their face. So what is it that makes a Japanese much different as compared to, dare I say, countries like India, where during earthquakes or during certain calamity prone regions, there have been instances of looting in countries like China, for that matter, which has not been seen in, in Japan. So what makes them so devoted and what makes them different, Ken?
1: It is hard to say. Japan is a mystery to everyone who falls in love with it and tries to learn about it. But having said that, that it's it's not easy to say and, and I don't know, let me try to very cautiously make a few observations. The first is that this is a very homogeneous society. For many, many years, the official policy I'm now talking about in medieval in Japan, it was illegal for people in Japan to go abroad and illegal for outsiders to go into Japan. And during that time, it was able to develop a lot of its culture and mores and customs and traditions. Secondly, they're a community of rice farming as opposed to, say, hunting and gathering. Now, this is what Japanese scholars say. I don't know how true it is because sometimes Japanese scholarship maybe relies more on myth than it does on reality. But what a typical Japanese person would say is, by being a rice farming community rather than hunting and gathering, Hunters and gatherers have teams, and they also have individuals, and you can have leaders, and they can go off and do other things. But in rice farming, it's a very community-oriented activity. You can't just have a family doing things. You have to have the whole community doing this. The modern implementation of all these things is that you've got a very strict and common public education system that teaches people respect and values. And as a result, all together you have a culture That is very much group-oriented, that thinks in unison and respects the fact that they all want to get along and be in a group and not disturb the harmony that should otherwise exist.
0: Right. So by the same account, then this doesn't seem to reflect in the plant, the nuclear plant, the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant, which is controlled by TEPCO or the Tokyo Electric Power Company, uh, which apparently has a pretty notorious history and you have been very critical about that particular organization for having a very shameful past. I, I quote from the article, it says that uh, it's about accidents, a shameful record of cover-ups, lackadaisical crisis management, and an inbred complicity between regulators and utilities. So what's that about? Is that a mystery? or?
1: Yeah, it's a very long history. But generally, the problem is that in Japan, it's a very rule-based society, lots and lots of rules but there's very bad enforcement of the rules. There's really no regulation for it. They just sort of assume that people are gonna do things right. And what that meant is that Tokyo Power, like other institutions, they cut corners in some instances because of a practice called amakaduri in which you take bureaucrats and they go into the private sector to work. So for example, if there was a nuclear accident and there was a small release of nuclear radiation, they might either not disclose it or disclose it far after the fact or disclose of you know the lowest possible level of contamination that they kind of know to be untrue, but they don't want to alarm people. Make even ben- they could even justify it by saying, well, the damage has been done, but the best thing that we can do is not create panic, so let's not alarm people.
0: Did they do the, Did they do any of that this time?
1: Well, we don't know. I would think they probably did not this time, but what we do know that they did is that they didn't take the crisis as seriously as they could have and should have at the very outset. As one example, they tried to get the plant back to running and using clean water to cool down the reactor, and they tried to do this for about two days, and that was the wrong solution because that didn't work. What they needed to do was what they eventually did was start spraying seawater onto it. Now, you don't want to spray seawater onto the reactor because it basically is so corrosive, it destroys the reactor. But they didn't understand on Friday afternoon that an overheating plant could become one that explodes, that it's going to be a public emergency. And as a result, they kind of created a half measure. And they did that for days and days until they realized they had to take a bigger measure. And now they can't control it. But if they had taken the right steps, you know, within the first five hours and certainly the first 24 hours, we wouldn't be at the stage right now in which... Agricultural products are being taken off the market, children in Tokyo are not allowed to drink the tap water, and maybe it's going to get worse. And you can blame Tetco for this problem. You can also blame the government, though. It's not the government of Nato Khan. You can blame the governing system. The whole political system is at fault, the DPJ, in fact, that is in power. The Opposition Party, which was formerly the government of the Liberal Democratic Party, it's their fault. They've had 55 years of one-party rule. So a big reform and cleaning needs to take place in Japanese society.
0: Right. And there are a lot of debates about if uh, democracy could have uh, had different results. Uh, But uh, we've seen in the past, uh, Ken, that back when another earthquake had struck the country in Kobe back in '95. 100,000 buildings were destroyed, 300,000 people displaced, 6,000 people died. But in less than 15 months, everything was up and running with 98% capacity. Does it make it a bit different this time that an earthquake and a tsunami has been topped by a nuclear crisis that nobody really knows how to deal with because there is no great history by which you can deal because if the scientists get things wrong, then the effects are far and wide. And we've seen that with uh, different countries starting to put out their messages. China said we are going to pause our nuclear reactor ambitions then uh, Germany, Merkel, she said that uh, moratorium for the next few months France is going ahead and stopping some of the 58 plants which produce about three fourths of the electricity for the country. So, is this nuclear bit adding to a lot of problems which nobody could foresee? Now, whether it happened in Japan or in any other country, the result would have been uh, similar we we are talking in benefit of hindsight what they did wrong and what they could have done better that 's my opinion. What do you think well
1: we have to break down what the government's doing well and what the government's not doing well in the immediate moment after the crisis there 's not much that a government can do other other than get the reports from the private sector and find out what they 're doing but if you 're not getting reliable information you know at the right time, then there 's a limit to what you can do and i I think that what happened was that the government was not receiving accurate information in a timely manner from TEPCO. And when the Prime Minister realized that he was just not getting the right information, he stormed into TEPCO's offices and basically said, I'm in charge, you're not anymore. Now, you might argue that that should have happened on Friday rather than you know many days later. However, I think that other countries that have militaries do understand the sense of responsibility Japan didn't have that. Many politicians that just come and go in a system that almost allows people to, very mediocre people, to touch the the baton or to get the gold ring of being prime minister just for a short period, maybe a year, maybe just a couple of months, and then go on to that good night and to be forgotten about. What we have now is a situation in which the government is trying very hard basically taken TEPCO away from the remedying this issue has given it to the pros in terms of the police department and the fire department, people who know how to put out fires and how to rebuild areas after crisis. But there's lots of areas where they're failing, and the biggest is petrol. There's just no petrol in the north, and there's shortages of food 10 days, 15 days after a quake. That shouldn't be the case, even if there's a burning nuclear power plant. There's certainly enough people who would be able to direct logistics up north, but they didn't.
0: Right. Isn't it ironic in a way that a country which boasts of such brilliant processes and innovations when it comes to business, whether it's Toyota or Toshiba, the political side of the country doesn't match up at all. For instance, I I wonder what would be the fate of the ones who have been asked to stay indoors and uh, they have run out of food and they can't really go out because there is not enough fuel to carry them to the next place, and if they come out, they probably won't survive the, the threat of radiation if there is any. So panic is one thing, but this is basic survival necessity, so it's, it's kind of sad. It
1: is. It is, it is a sad thing. It's, it's a true pity that situation spiraled out of control.
0: How long do you think uh, at least the industries will start coming back to normalcy, whether it's the car industry or the semiconductor industry which has been hit greatly and there are many countries which would source their parts from Japan now are probably going to countries like South Korea and China. So it's a double whammy because the production lines are shut and some of their business will go to other countries. So uh, considering all of this and what's happening with the nuclear reactor there, How long do you think, with your experience, that the country could come back to normalcy when it comes to business? You know,
1: in terms of, uh, we can talk about in terms of a quake and not in terms of the effect of nuclear radiation. In terms of a quake, it should be really about a quarter or two of uh, contraction, and then you would normally see growth again. Industry would be going again. You'd get a bit of a pump because you spent a lot of government resources to, to rebuild. In this instance, we can't really presume that, and that's because of radiation contamination, firstly. Big, big question mark, just no one has any knowledge of what to do about that because...
0: As we speak, you still don't know, Ken okay, sitting there in Tokyo, what is the status with the nuclear reactor? Whether Japan is safe when it comes to that? Not,
1: not actually, I mean, we, uh-huh. we, we do know the status, right? Yeah. It's just not a very good status. All six reactors have received outside electricity, but not all of them have their equipment running. There's three problem reactors, or the biggest problems of the reactors. They're all problems. but reactor number one, two, and three, they're slightly different. Reactor number two hasn't blown up. Uh, one and three have had explosions, so you can get water to them a little bit easier. We know that reactor number two started billowing black smoke today. Radiation levels from there are higher than they have been uh, throughout the rest of the crisis. So it's clearly, there's been an accident, something else has happened there. We know the status is just not good status. It's basically, they're, they're overheating, and they're spewing out radiation into the atmosphere. Not what you wanted to know.
0: Right. And you think two or three quarters is what uh, Japan will take to probably come back, just considering well, the quake?
1: I would say, actually, I'd say no. I, sh- I shouldn't be misleading. Um, I think normally you would see that in in an earthquake, but this is no longer an earthquake issue, right? It's now about radiation. And on top of it, power and energy, because it, because it's affected a nuclear power plant, as well as other nuclear power plants that have been taken offline because of damage, the country is probably facing about a 12% energy shortage. And so what that adds up to is that there's more uncertainty in terms of when industry will come back, because... We to handle and deal with the fact that you have less electricity than you have for less supply than you have demand. You have to introduce what's called kind of rolling blackouts or managed power cuts, in which you announce every day, say between you know, you know eight and ten, this region is offline, and every day between twelve, you know ten and twelve, this region will have a blackout, etc. And you can manage it this way. That's fine for consumers when it comes to whether I turn up, flip the light at my home or not, and the light turns on or watch television. It's deadly for business because many businesses. If they don't have continuous electricity, they don't even want to start up the machines, right? In the electronics industry, it might take, it might take six hours just to get the machines to calibrate, right? just to get them working before you start making the stuff. That's a big issue, and if, if that continues, a lot of businesses will not be able to operate. On that note, I should say that it is now rather late, and I, should better, I better get going and get back to work.
0: Great. Thanks a lot for your time, Ken. And I can only imagine the kind of work as a journalist that you're doing out there. And it must be quite a tough gig to, to stay detached with the kind of uh, mayhem that is around you. So good luck with uh, the rest of the stories. And thank you very much for the time that you've spent here on Indicast.
1: My pleasure. All the best. It's always a pleasure to t- chat. Thanks a lot. Take care.
0: Thanks, Ken.